Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You can download Spacetime as a free twice-weekly podcast just about everywhere, including iTunes, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, Bytes.com, SoundCloud, Audio Boom, and from SpacetimeWithStuartGary.com. The show's also broadcast coast-to-coast across the United States on Science360 Radio by the National Science Foundation in Washington, D.C. Coming up on Space Time. Clues to one of the largest asteroid impacts in Earth's history discovered in Western Australia. A new study works out why galaxies stop making stars. And the hunt for dark matter continues following another failed search for the elusive particle. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. Clues to one of the largest asteroid impacts in Earth's history have been discovered in Western Australia. A report in the journal Precambrium Research claims the impact occurred about 3.46 billion years ago, making it the second oldest dated collision in the planet's history. The study's lead author, Dr Andrew Glickson from the Australian National University, says the asteroid would have been between 20 and 30 kilometres wide, and it would have created an impact crater hundreds of kilometres across. Asteroid strikes this big result in major tectonic shifts and extensive magma flows significantly affecting the way Earth evolved. Glickson and colleagues found evidence for the impact in the form of tiny glass beads known as spherules, which were formed out of material that was vaporised by the asteroid impact. These spherules were found in seafloor sediments in northwestern Australia. However, exactly where the asteroid struck the planet remains a mystery. You see, the impact was so massive, ejecta from it would have been spread worldwide. Glickson says the impact would have triggered earthquakes orders of magnitude greater than any terrestrial earthquake. It would have caused huge tsunamis and made cliffs crumble. During a period known as the late heavy bombardment between 3.8 and 3.9 billion years ago, the moon was struck by numerous asteroids, many of which formed craters called mare, which are still visible from Earth today. However, on Earth, any craters from this time period would have been obliterated long ago by weathering, volcanic activity and tectonic plate movements. Glickson, together with Dr Arthur Hickman from the Geological Survey of Western Australia, found the glass beads in a drill core sample from Marble Bar in northwestern Australia, in some of the oldest known sediments on Earth. The sedimentary layer, which was originally the ocean floor, was preserved between two volcanic layers, which enabled very precise dating of its origin. Glickson, who's been searching for evidence of ancient asteroid impacts for more than 20 years, immediately suspected the glass beads originated from an asteroid strike. Subsequent testing found the levels of elements such as platinum, nickel and chromium match those found in asteroids. Glickson says there may be many more similar asteroid impacts around the planet for which evidence has so far simply not been found. In fact, he believes it's just the tip of the iceberg. Scientists have so far only found evidence for 17 asteroid impacts on Earth older than 2.5 billion years. Glickson thinks there could be hundreds more. A new study has determined why galaxies stop making stars. 
The findings, reported in the Astrophysical Journal, found external processes ripping star-forming gas from galaxies has dominated the quenching of star formation in galaxies during the past 8 billion years. However, astronomers also found that internal processes blowing gas out of galaxies was the dominant mechanism for shutting down star formation before this time and closer to the beginning of the universe. Galaxies come in three main shapes, elliptical, spiral such as the Milky Way, and irregular. They can be massive or they can be small, and they can be red or blue in colour. Blue galaxies are actively forming stars, while more red ones have mostly stopped star formation. The processes that cause galaxies to quench, that is, stop making new stars, aren't well understood, and so they constitute a major problem in the study of galaxy evolution. Now, using a massive sample of around 70,000 galaxies, scientists from the University of California, the California Institute of Technology, and Lancaster University in the UK have developed a possible explanation for why galaxies turn off and stop creating stars. The research team sifted through data from the Cosmos Ultra Vista Survey, which provides accurate distance estimates for galaxies over the past 11 billion years. They're focused on the effects of both internal and external processes which could influence star formation activity in galaxies. Now, external mechanisms include the sorts of gravitational drag that's generated from an infalling galaxy within a cluster of galaxies which can pull gas away from a galaxy. Other external factors can include multiple gravitational encounters with other galaxies and the density of the surrounding environment, again resulting in material being stripped away from the galaxy and consequently the halting of the supply of fresh cold gas to a galaxy, thus strangling the galaxy of the material needed to produce new stars over a prolonged period of time. The authors found that on average these external processes can act in relatively short timescales, maybe around a billion years or so, and they provide an effective way of quenching even the most massive galaxies. On the other hand, internal mechanisms that can affect star production in the galaxy include stellar outflow, which involves the high-velocity stellar winds produced by massive young stars, as well as the blast winds produced by supernovae, exploding stars, which can act to push gas out of a galaxy. Other internal mechanisms include black holes, which are capable of generating powerful jets, winds and intense radiation that can both heat up any hydrogen gas in the galaxy or blow it completely out of the galaxy, in both cases preventing gas from cooling and contracting to form stars. These internal effects are far more efficient in dense clusters of galaxies. The findings also show that both internal and external processes don't act independently of each other when it comes to shutting off star formation. The study gives astronomers an important clue towards understanding which processes dominate the quenching of stars in galaxies at various cosmic times. As astronomers detect quenched non-star forming galaxies at different distances and therefore different times after the Big Bang, they can now more easily pinpoint what quenching mechanism was at work. In astronomy, much debate continues on whether it's only internal, external or a combination of both phenomena that makes a galaxy quench star formation. It's still not clear which processes are mostly responsible, and unclear too is the fractional role of different physical processes in shutting down star formation. It's also not fully understood exactly when these processes came to play an important role in the evolutionary life of galaxies. A 20-month-long search for a mysterious particle which makes up 80% of all the matter in the universe 
has failed to uncover the elusive identity of dark matter. The study conducted by the Lux or Large Underground Xenon Dark Matter Experiment has yielded no trace of a candidate particle despite being the most sensitive search ever conducted. Scientists know dark matter exists because they can see its gravitational influence on normal matter, including the way it bends light and the effects it has on the rotation of galaxies. The discovery of the nature of this elusive dark matter, which accounts for more than four-fifths of the entire mass of the universe, is internationally recognised as one of the highest priorities in science. Scientists say had dark matter particles interacted with the Lux Xenon target, the detector would almost certainly have seen it. The failure of the Lux experiment to detect this mysterious substance significantly changes the landscape of the field by constraining models of exactly what dark matter particles could be beyond anything that existed previously. In the process, this allows researchers to eliminate many potential models and refocus their studies in new directions for the next generation of experiments. The Lux experiment is located in the Stanford Underground Laboratory, some 1,510 metres below ground at the Homestake Gold Mine in the Black Hills of South Dakota. Lux was designed to look for weakly interacting massive particles, or WIMPs, the leading theoretical candidate for a dark matter particle. If the WIMP idea is correct, billions of these particles would be passing through your hand every second and also through the Earth and everything on it. But because WIMPs interact so weakly with ordinary matter, this ghostly traverse goes entirely unnoticed. Scientists worked to identify and classify pulses in the raw data collected by LUX in order to select candidate pulse signal events which could indicate a weakly interacting massive particle or WIMP. Pulse selection and identification is a vital part of the experiment because researchers are looking for an extremely rare event. So it was vital to remove noise and events that didn't exhibit signatures expected to originate from WIMP dark matter. That's one of the reasons why the experiment was located one and a half kilometres underground. Over the next few months, Lux scientists will continue analysing the data Lux was able to provide in the hope of helping develop future experiments that may finally be capable of pinning down a dark matter particle. To continue the hunt for a dark matter particle, scientists are now working on the Lux Zeppelin experiment, which is now under construction and will eventually take over from Lux, providing over 70 times the sensitivity of Lux. We'll keep you informed. Scientists have discovered a new type of sand dune on the surface of the red planet Mars, which is unlike anything seen on Earth. The newly identified dune, reported in the journal Science, appears to be an intermediate in size between tiny ripples and larger wavier dunes. Because sand dunes can be preserved in rock, these sedimentary deposits may be a new way of gaining fresh insights into the evolution of the Martian atmosphere from a more hospitable time in the past to the harsh dry climate being observed there today. On Earth, wind and water passing over sand causes the formation of both large dunes and small ripples, Collectively, they're known as bedforms. True sand dunes, typically larger than a football field, have downwind faces shaped by sand avalanches, making them far steeper than their upwind faces. Smaller ripples, appearing in rows typically less than 30 centimetres apart, are formed by sand grains carried in the wind, colliding with other sand grains along the ground, forming impact ripples which corrugate the surfaces of larger dunes and beaches. Caltech researcher Andre Laporta and colleagues studied a combination of images from NASA's Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter spacecraft and close-up images taken by the Mars Curiosity rover of active dunes on the northwestern flank of Gale Crater's Mount Sharp to analyse the bedforms. 
Images of Martian sand dunes taken from orbit show ripples about three metres apart on the dune surfaces. The close-up images from Curiosity show that these were in fact impact ripples, but several times larger than typical impact ripples on Earth. Laporta says these were far more like sand ripples which on Earth are formed under moving water. Superimposed on the surfaces of these larger ripples were smaller ripples, more similar in size and shape to impact ripples on Earth. Another similarity between the mid-sized ripples on Mars and the underwater ripples on Earth is that in each case, one face of each ripple is steeper than the face on the other side and has sand flows as in a dune. The researchers have concluded that these metascale ripples are built by Martian winds dragging sand particles the way flowing water drags sand particles on Earth. It's a different mechanism which Laporte and colleagues are calling wind drag ripples. The size of these ripples is directly related to the density of the fluid moving the grains, in this case the Martian atmosphere. Laporte thinks the size of preserved wind drag ripples where found in Martian sandstones may have recorded the thinning of the planet's atmosphere. Building on decades of water flume experiments on Earth, the researchers developed a scaling relationship to predict the crest-to-crest spacing between underwater ripples. So the discovery provides a direct link between the size of dune ripples and changes in atmospheric density, allowing scientists to use the observation of sedimentary Martian rocks to measure global changes in the red planet's atmospheric density over time. And joining us now is Jonathan Nally, editor of Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, to take us on a journey through this month's edition. The August issue of Australian Sky and Telescope magazine is out now. It covers the August and September period, and there's plenty of great reading in it. Our cover story deals with a strange burst of radio waves picked up years ago by the famous Parkes Telescope in New South Wales, called a fast radio burst. Astronomers missed it at first, they did, but have since found a handful of other instances where there's been a powerful blast of these kinds of radio waves coming in from space. Uh, they've used other telescopes around the world and, no pun intended, but it's keeping some astronomers up at night because they can't quite figure out what's causing these kinds of radio bursts. Um, I think the current hypothesis is that one likely cause could be a type of gamma ray burst which is a type of supernova. They're still not really sure and that's a really big mystery. Yeah, and that's the way these things go. This fast radio burst, the initial one, was discovered accidentally. It was in the data um, as a little sort of a, a splodge and the squiggly lines on a, on a printout uh, and the people who were observing that night or looking for whatever they were looking for weren't interested in that kind of thing, so they didn't even see it in the data. But someone was going through it years and years later and thought, what on earth is that? That is, that is a really big burst of radio waves and it covers a lot of frequencies. So they went looking for some more and, and sure enough, when you start when you go looking for them, then you find them. So yeah, they don't really know what's causing them yet, but they'll get to the bottom of it. This is the way it always goes with um, this kind of science or any, any sort of science, really. Unexpected things pop up. Just when you think you've got it all sorted out, <laughs> something else pops up. You heard about the uh, the microwave oven incidents? Yeah, the poor old microwave oven incident at Park. Should yes. we go through the poor... Oh, yeah. please. Yes, let's do that. I uh, think it was part of this whole thing, actually. Yeah. Yes, it was, yeah. But they started picking up fast radio bursts at the same time every day, what they thought was an FRB. And it turned out it was actually the speed at which the people working at the Park's dish were opening the microwave oven door. They would open the door before it started beeping to let you know the whatever you're cooking, the microwave's ready. And so there were just a few microwaves escaping from the 
the oven and that was setting it off. I mean, it was happening at the same time every day and eventually they were able to work out what it was. Well, this is the thing. If, if you're getting something that is repetitive and happens at the same time every day uh, and it sort of has, is regular like that, then that sort of indicates that it's not a natural phenomenon because most natural phenomenons are, are pretty random. Uh, an exception there is the is, uh, pulsars, which are rotating neutron stars that put out powerful radio signals and they these radio as the, as the neutron star spins as the pulsar spins it acts like a sort of a lighthouse sending out radio waves and you get this this uh, very very repetitive pulse and when they were first discovered everyone thought what, what on earth could this be there are no no uh, regular repetitive pulses of anything coming from space maybe it's artificial maybe we found aliens but they quickly decided that it wasn't so yeah when when you get a um, any sort of uh, something that repeats at the same time every day and uh, and has the same sort of characteristics you you've got to be suspicious that this is probably a signal coming from earth not from somewhere out in space so yeah they eventually tracked down this uh this microwave oven thing microwaves being just a, a kind of radio wave so um yeah a slight embarrassment but that's fine that's that happens you know these uh they, they sorted it out in the end and you've got a story about a observatory on the roof of a building in perth that's right this is a, it's, it's perth it's a big city of a million plus people so uh, you'd expect to you know have an observatory out in the middle of nowhere uh, rather than in the middle of a city but this is a special one this one is a completely robotic observatory like on the roof. In fact, they've got two of them side by side on the roof of this building at the University of WA. And it's used by school students via remote control from anywhere, really. They've had kids from Japan use it, but it's mostly used by Australian students. And the kids can take remote control of these telescopes or set up a computer program to let the telescope do its own thing in the middle of the night. And they can take pictures and they can make astronomical measurements and they can even contribute to real science doing this. It's a fantastic adventure. It's called Spirit and it's run by a guy called Paul Lucas, tremendous good on you, Paul, and he's written a story about the adventures of the two telescopes and the kids that use it. It's, it's fantastic. I just wish this kind of thing had been around when I was a kid, when I was in high school. I was just room. about to say that. I wish they had something like that at the school I went to in Sydney when I was a kid. That would have been well, I was so in, cool. I was, in a country, I was in a country high school and there was a rumour that there was a telescope in pieces in a cupboard somewhere, but no one could find it and we probably wouldn't have been allowed to use it anyway. Uh, so I had to make do with uh, my mother's binoculars. But um, yeah, this sort of thing today kids just don't know how lucky they are do they now, yeah but all of, parents uh, say that come on <laughs> <laughs> yeah every generation says that i suppose can you imagine what it's going to be like 20 years from now goodness knows what they're going to have Indeed. now for those who like to take photos of the night sky we've also got a fantastic article which takes you step by step through the process of stacking photos this is where you don't just take one photo of a galaxy or a nebula or whatever you want to get you take a bunch of them and then you stack them in a computer program called deep sky stacker surprisingly and what it does is combines them into one picture takes all the best elements of each picture and combines them and you get a tremendous result it really means you can take uh, images that look just like the pros okay so it's a fantastic way to do things these days it's also... really tough manually but with a computer program i can imagine it'd be a lot simpler oh look you know doing it this way um you go back 20 30 years and and amateur astronomers are out there taking you know three or four hour long exposures onto film and hoping for the best that they get it right now you can take um you know a whole whole series of these electronic images with your digital camera and then just pick the best ones of them and they'll combine them all into one using your com computer and you get a fantastic result i mean honestly the, the pictures we get sent in to australian sky and telescope magazine uh these days are better in many ways than the professional 
that they're using their huge observatories were producing 20 years ago. I mean, it just is astounding. In many ways, the amateur astronomers, the ones who are you know, got the good gear and have learned how to use it and use all these computer programs and things, they are taking the best astronomical photos. And we're world. seeing more and more amateur astronomers' names on scientific papers because of that, because they're doing a lot of the background work to help the professionals. In fact, I think on Space Time, we've done about three stories this year alone just on the work done by amateur astronomers to help the professional guys in terms of observing. Well, that's exactly right, because A, there's a there are a lot more amateur astronomers out there, thousands of them, and, and they're volunteers. Hmm. So yeah. the professionals you know, can call upon a whole cadre of, of people to help them out, uh, and these people would just love to be involved. So, and you can get involved in that. There's all sorts of different aspects of astronomy you can get well, involved. Well, zoo, of course, yeah. We talked about that yeah, last week. There's, yeah, there's stuff on, online. You can do the Galaxy Zoo and all sorts of things, but you can also get out and take your own make your own observations and take measurements with whether, whether it's things called variable stars or comets or asteroids or things called occultations where one astronomical body moves in front of another and you make timings of it. Uh, eclipses, all sorts of things, meteors, you, you name it. Um, you, know, you, you can get involved and you can just be making a few observations but you can be taking part in real science because all your data gets collected up and merge with everybody else's and and astronomers are always putting out calls uh, I get the emails uh, every day or two hey we're, we're on a campaign to look at this particular object uh, we need amateurs to get out there with this kind of equipment or make these kinds of observations please 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 send us your data or send us your observations every one is precious we need every little bit of data we can get so you can get you can get uh, you can get really involved if you want to you can either just do it for fun and go out and have a enjoy looking at the night sky or you can really get involved and contribute to science and do you have contact links for those absolutely whenever these sort of things are running we put information about that in the magazine uh, we have special sections of the magazine in fact for variable stars and comets and and uh, double stars and those kinds of things so you can contact the relevant organizations through the information that's there. Now also in the current issue of the magazine we test drive one of the new breed of large computerized backyard telescopes. Uh, backyard telescopes have been computerized for quite a while but this one's pretty special. It's called a uh, Ritchie Crescent. and it's made by a company called Astrotech. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a pretty impressive uh, telescope. Plus if you've already got a big scope or you get one of these we show you exactly where and when and how to spot Pluto. Yes, you can see it if you have the right gear and you know exactly where to look. So if you've seen all the rest of the planets and you want to know where to find Pluto, make sure you grab the current issue of Australian Sky and Telescope because we show you exactly where to find it. That's Jonathan Nally, the editor of Australian Sky and Telescope magazine. And that's the show for now. You can subscribe and download Spacetime as a free twice-weekly podcast through iTunes, Stitcher, Bytes.com, Pocket Casts, SoundCloud, Audio Boom, and from Spacetime with StuartGary.com. For more, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr. Just search for Spacetime with Stuart Gary. This show is also broadcast coast to coast across the United States on Science 360 Radio by the National Science Foundation in Washington, D.C. You've been listening to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. Subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, Pocket Casts or Audio Boom. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine. This month exploring the mystery of fast radio bursts.